0: when he came for dinner so it's all we've got all the interruptions out of the way hey welcome to marginally a podcast about writing work and friendship i'm olivia a consultant living in ukraine and london working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects
1: And I'm Megan,
0: a librarian and
1: freelance indexer, writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. Today, we're bringing you an interview with writer and editor Julie Bunton, the author of a great friendship novel, Marlena, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize, long-listed for the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize and named a Best Book of the Year by more than a dozen outlets, including the Washington Post, NPR, and Kirkus Reviews. Y'all, it's really good. Julie is from northern Michigan, and her writing has appeared in the Atlantic, Vogue, and the New York Times Book Review, Guernica, and other publications. She has taught creative writing at New York University, Columbia University, and the Yale Writers' Workshop, and is about to start teaching in the Helen Zell Writers Program at the University of Michigan. She is a recent Ellen Levine Fund for Writers Award winner for her current novel, In Progress, and is editor-at-large for Catapult. You can find her at juliebunton.com and on Twitter at juliebunton. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, uh, serious and not so serious. From the impact of early friendships and loss to current friendships and how important they are, to Golden Girls, Judy Bloom, and Nicholas Cage, and then back around to The Algorithm and How to Run a Writing Workshop. We love talking to Julie and hope you enjoy listening.
0: Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. We're very excited.
1: Yeah, I'm very
2: happy to be here. Thank you for
0: asking me. Awesome. Um, I'm Olivia. Megan's the other one.
1: Hi. Hi. I just got obsessed with women's friendship novels over the summer as a concept. But one of the women's friendship novels that I got obsessed with was yours. So, um,
2: yeah, it's a really rich, um, it's a really rich kind of territory in literature. There's so there's so much more than there used to be, especially now um, on the subject.
1: It's really cool. Awesome. Well, and so so you work at Catapult, so I kind of figure that you are technically an expert voice on like the literary scene in general and or as expert as any of us can be about anything, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah, and that's how
0: we're pitching you, so don't, no pressure <laughs> or anything. Um,
1: but no, so I actually was really interested to talk to you about what you think about, because um, I agree that this, this is a really rich subject and also that it has kind of exploded in the last I don't know, I guess maybe since Elena Ferrante showed up, um, but what do you think, I just kind of was interested to hear what your thought, I mean, we're just jumping right in, uh, (laughs) yeah, I was like, have we already started this podcast? Okay, great. (laughs) Sorry, um, yeah, I was just really curious, um, to talk about what you see going on with this genre, I guess you could call it, and why, um, I don't know, it's just really interesting, but I'd like yeah. to talk a little bit about that and
2: um think sure. about other things.
1: So, but since we started yeah. on that.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I can't um, say at least without doing some like digging into my own kind of notes and sort of stuff that's all over my desk. I can't give like full like sort of overview of how how uh, the topic has changed and like morphed over I don't know, the last 50 years and contemporary literature, American literature, at least, or specifically. But I would say, just as a sort of observation, that it seems like there's been a higher um, density of these kinds of stories in, like, the last 10 years, 15 years. And, and I wonder if part of that is just as we, uh, as a reading culture, kind of open up to um, more women's voices, more marginalized voices, more people of color writing their narratives. We are um, just going to get more stories about the relationships that are really formative to those people. And I think for women, so, so often, like, friendship is is the formative, especially adolescent friendship, With an is it, like the big thing. And then the fact that some of those books started to do really well, like, I mean, Elena Ferrante is Italian, but that was such a sensation here and definitely I think the publishers like sit up straight and say to themselves like this is not just you know something that people are writing a lot of and that people um that's sort of on our minds it's it's also like a big selling (laughs) it will work financially um you know the girls by Emma Klein is another really Mm -hmm. sort of financially successful example of that But those stories have been around. I mean, the one that was really formative for me when I was growing up and as a writer was Who Run the Frog Hospital by Laurie Moore, which um, I think was published, I think it was in, yeah, it was in, it was in 94. Um, And for me, that was like the first very literary novel that I can remember reading. I read it as a teenager that had like a high attention paid to sentences and wordplay and images and all the things that I love from like what I thought of as like highbrow fiction mm-hmm. if I knew what that was at 16 which I didn't really but I, I had some sense that some things were like better than others um when it came to prose and that was like functioning at the highest level in terms of prose but it was also this like really funny um authentic poignant story about a, a friendship between two girls that was really like full of the silly stuff like joking and making up songs and there is a kind of more dramatic plot line that runs through it. Um, I won't spoil it, but, uh, the fact that the, the story really seemed to me to be about how that friendship was like the most vibrant thing in the narrator's life, even long after, um, felt really innovative and special to read as a teenage girl who like loved my friends and <laughs> felt that they were my whole world yeah. and still kind of feel that way as an adult woman. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that totally answers your question. I mean, I just I think again as like we celebrate women's stories and, and and run to publish them, these friendships are going to keep coming up. Friendship stories are going to be right at the forefront of what women are talking about because they are so essential to how we figure out who we are.
1: You know? Yeah. No, they're they're so central to our lives. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense that that's what we write about and that's what we read about. So. Yeah. yeah. Have you all read The Animators by Taylor e. Whittaker? Whitaker? No, but I'm writing it down right now.
0: Yeah, that's another one I, I can already tell that we're going to end up with like a huge list of books to read at the end of this podcast. That
2: <laughs> book is like, I feel like that book um, was a little bit overlooked. Forgive me if you're, if Kayla ever listens to this. I, if, I, I think it's it. <laughs> incredible, incredible, wonderful, great novel that's like delicious and. A fast read, but really moving and powerful. And it's about um, two women who are who are like longtime college best friends who bond over their love of making animation and wind up becoming creative partners. Um, so it's also like a story of their artistic development, and they become like pretty successful. Uh, and that's such an interesting example too, because it's like the friendship also becomes this like project of joint ambition. That's um, like really, I think, kind of an interesting take on the on the female friendship narrative um it came out in 20 i think 17 maybe 2016 and i think is one of the better the better novels in that vein for sure
1: yeah no that sounds really interesting um especially as one half of a friendship that was just a regular i mean a regular good close friendship but a regular friendship for a really long time before it became a creative partnership um yeah and creative partnerships in general is another thing that we are exploring through this and so yeah that's actually perfect um but i did want to ask you so before we get into that because that's a whole different like tangent um but i did want to talk a little bit about marlena and also congratulations on your uh recent award like for your novel in progress um that's really exciting yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so a lot of, like, Marlena is such a classic, what I think of as the magnetic, toxic, older friend, coming-of-age story, which I guess sort of mashes two things together, um, but Cat is, Cat is perfectly primed when they move, so for our listeners who haven't read the book, um, is it, it's been out for a couple of years now, um, but Cat is perfectly primed, I think, for a massive, like, she's primed to meet Marlena when she and her family moved to Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and um, she, so when she does meet this mysterious, dynamic, dangerous, wild older girl, it's, like, the time is right. She could have just ignored her, but the time is right for this enormous rebellion, um, that then completely changes the whole course of her life. And what is so interesting about this is a lot of these kinds of novels will just focus on that story as it unfolds. And instead you chose to frame it as from Cat as an adult thinking about the friendship. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: What. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I made that decision
1: um,
2: for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, for, there's definitely some. Um, there are definitely some other ways of thinking about this, and some some people might disagree with me, but I tend to think of like a. I, I knew I wanted to write about some things that wouldn't be, uh, would be a little bit tricky to talk about, like alcoholism or um, dangerous drinking behavior, substance abuse, um, addiction in teenagers and, um, and family members and. Parents, um, neglect, class issues, um, and I, I, I felt like in order to have the kind of like full canvas that I wanted and which to spread out and kind of tell that story with all my tools as a writer and my um, at my side, so to speak, I needed I needed the retrospective kind of gloss over the narrative because I needed to have access to an adult psyche's like an adult, however twisted or manipulated or biased it was um, an adult kind of level of like introspection and um, the kind of dual nature of like being able to remember the event and then reflect on it or like question it or twist it around and see a different angle. Um, That to me in in some ways was more interesting than like the story (laughs) itself. Um, Almost more interested in like the ways that we, the ways that people um carry these formative memories or stories of the people that they loved and and kind of twist that narrative or let it like infect them in toxic ways or in in you know ways that change that person to be a hero or whatever Um, so that's kind of why i decided to do that and then also if you tell a story like the one that i i told about the girls as teenagers just as it unfolds really close to say cat's perspective um to me that's one of the differences between like YA literature and adult literature um yes. or literature for young younger readers versus re- literature for older readers is just that like with te- technically and this is something i think about in my editorial life too like if it's happening really close to the teenager's perspective and it doesn't have any kind of adult mitigation of what's unfolding that to me tends to um feel like more YA And I, I'm interested in why I would and hope to write it sometime. I didn't see this story with my uh, kind of questions about memory and and narrative structure and like grief and how grief changes over time to kind of, I didn't think it would be best suited by that closer first, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that you're definitely right. And you can address issues, those same issues in YA. Um, that's actually what I write is, well, some of what I write is YA, um, or that I'm working on, but you address it in a different way, I think. Um, yeah. And for the narrator to come in and kind of give it this adult interpretation just makes YA sound moralizing, but if yeah, you're, like, yeah, totally.
2: Yeah. And I don't know how to do that. Right. Like, I mean, not that I like, that's also part of it too. Like YA has specific kind of conventions and um like certain things that you you should know as a writer before you go in and try, I think a certain kind of respect for like the history of YA and how people are thinking about it and the kind of and approaching it. And I didn't think that I I don't have those tools yet. Though I again if I do, I do want kind of want to try it sometime and I hope to like learn them. But but yeah, so that was that was another reason why I just kind of decided to go the way I did. Though sometimes people will be like, oh, is it YA because it's about teenagers, which is a funny thing that people will say if you write about teenagers. They just assume right, <laughs> like right. no adult would want to read about a teenager or that no adult would want to read YA, which is like not true. Um, but yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you find people ask that question, though, about books by men about young people? Like they're not asking if like Edgar Sawtell was YA, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean... I, I don't. My husband wrote a book about a college wrestler. Um and I college but like still a young a very young man. He's like I think he's like twenty, I should know this. Um like <laughs> nobody asks him if <laughs> who it's for.
1: Yeah, like Rabbit is not YA, right? Like no one asks Updike if well, I mean YA didn't really exist then, but still. Um
0: No, but a lot of classic literature is also about young protagonists, right? I mean and some of it gets read in school now as if it's YA, like, I don't know, Mark Twain or something, but that wasn't, like, precisely his audience, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that sounds annoying. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I was just thinking, it's just interesting that as as the authorship uh, demographics changed, um, maybe the way we think about them has changed.
0: Yeah. Well, and- and women get this answer, this question a lot more, I think, in general. It's like, oh, does anyone really want to read about that, right? When men have been writing about analogous experiences for a long time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do, I do remember when Marlena, like, this is, like, uh, kind of an intimate thing to share, but I remember when Marlena went out on submission, actually, a lot of, some of the feedback that I got from people who decided not to move forward with the book was, like, it's too quiet, or, like, I don't understand, like, what? Are. And I remember thinking, like, at the time, like, of course, like, there were, there were actually, I revised the book quite a lot after one went on submission, so there were certainly things that came out of those conversations that I think were true, like, there were a lot of things that weren't working in the bot, and, and those editors were all smart, and I respect them all, um, but I also did wonder, like, what is this quiet thing? Like, what are they talking about quiet? Like, these are, like, this is a book about, like, explosive people, like, <laughs> I, I just couldn't really understand what was quiet about it. There were, like, drugs, and, like, people died, and like, there's sex in it. Um, But it wasn't, I think what that had, I think that was a gendered, a little bit of a gendered critique. Um, Yeah. This idea that like these experiences are quiet. I just don't think that like a a male story about the same things would get that, would get that modifier attached to it.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Um, It might've gotten rejected for another reason, but I don't know if it would have been because of the quietness, you know?
0: Well, Megan and I are in this constant discussion about, Gender. I don't know how much we want to reveal on this, but why not? We talked um, about it last time anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but we talk a lot, especially when we're, we, I, like, I'm now, like, thinking a lot about these friendship narratives and what, like, type of friendship and what do you get to do as friends that gets to be counted as art or whatever. And, like, there's this kind of, dis- a lot of female friendship books are more about, like, being Um, not necessarily about, like, quests or something. A lot of male friendship things are about quests, right? Like, you have some other purpose and you're whatever. Um, And, mm, like, that. I think that's just, like, how we frame these different things. And then we put the women into this box of, like, quiet because it's about women rather than, like, really examining kind of what is happening in that art. And also, like, inherently there's a kind of value to men going on quests and less value to women being women, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it does. It does often feel that way. Um, there's a book that I, now I'm not thinking of that.
2: It's kind of like a, a counterpoint to that, that I, that also was like wildly overlooked. It's not about female friendship, it's about male friendship, but it's like a really, it, the reason I thought of it is because I was trying to think, I was like agreeing with you that most of the male friendship stories that I can think of are like questy and in a sense. And this is very not. <laughs> it's um, it's called Brewster by Mark Sluka. Has anyone read that? It's, it's gorgeous. It's a really, really, really beautiful book. And I always wondered like why. It also, I think like didn't get the attention that it should have gotten. Um, and it came out in 2013. And I think, I, I don't know. I think too, like anytime we write into these spaces, right, and we, like, do something, no matter our gender identity, like, we do something that doesn't seem to sync up with what is expected of that, (laughs) it can be a little hard to, like, find putting in the publishing world unless there's a champion or something like that.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that is true, definitely. So I'm interested in if you have real life friendships that support your writing or like creative friendships or partnerships or however you want to define that. But I'm curious about, uh, about like real life. We're just spending a lot of time talking about like real life art intersection around friendship.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, that's a great question. And it's funny. Like, I think so. now that martina has been out for two years and I've like sort of, it's been a while since I've done a kind of conversation about the book, and I was a little protective um, when I talked about the book publicly back then because I I felt um, a lot of sense of like audiences and interviewers trying to push me to conflate like the narrative, the fictional narrative, with my real life um, mm-hmm. in ways that felt like really uncomfortable to me. And so I was I was constantly both trying to like be honest about the ways in which it was it came from life, which it did in some ways and, and didn't 100% did not in other ways, but also like, um, also like defend against, against this kind of notion that it was, it was more true than not. Um, so I, I didn't really get a chance to talk about, or I, or I didn't, I didn't choose at least to talk about the friendships that have been really important to me with the exception maybe I, I probably referenced a few times, just one, Um, which was a friendship in my adolescence. My closest friend from, you know, my sort of like teen years um, passed away when I was in my early 20s. She she died of uh, complications related to substance abuse and alcohol um, abuse and uh, various other things that were kind of going on. And it was really, it was both sudden and sort of completely expected at the same time. If you've lost someone from addiction, you probably know that like complicated feeling of like, this can't be happening and also like this was always going to happen um sense Mm -hmm. that is really hard to deal with because you'll always wind up feeling I think like you should have done something more if any part of you expected it you know Uh, um so so there's that friendship right which was like really my friend she's not here anymore and she we had grown apart um well after my teenage years basically because we were on just like really different paths but we had been she was my sort of magic teenage friend you know <laughs> like that and it seemed really wild to me and still sometimes does that our lives could have turned out so differently it seems like cosmically unfair and like wrong um that it should be this way so that that friendship has informed me I mean it's, I'm getting kind of to the left of your question but I'll come back around to friendships now that are more um informative on my creative life but that friendship has, a, has stayed with me in a lot of ways. Like obviously it was the seeds, the feelings that I felt about that loss were the whole wellspring for how I wrote Marlena. Certainly, like I was emotionally driven by trying to figure out how I was going to live with what had happened. And even though what I wrote isn't what happened, it helped in some way. But also that friendship still steers me in, in, in different ways all the time. <laughs> like, I get, like every time I remember what, what the friend that I lost doesn't get to do, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it changes something about, it's changed something about how I, I live, I think. Um, and, and, and I think it's also changed something about how uh, the way that I approach my friendships now. Um, I, I do have a, a really, really amazing um, group of women in my life that I love desperately. I was just actually right before, while I was trying to figure out my Skype password, I was texting with one of them, my friend Rebecca Dinerstein, who's a novelist, um, whose second book is coming out next spring. It's just, we met in grad school. We met, gosh, in 2011, I guess. Um, Not 20 years yet, but it's just been a constant source of like, comfort and um, questioning and the kind of good pressure that makes you better, I think. Um, And and also she it comes from or started as it's changed now and, and in some ways our art making seems like secondary but it started from a place of like deep I think mutual respect for what the other person was trying to do um, and that still remains like I I don't know like we we don't necessarily share work at an early stage but we do at kind of later stages in the process and um, that's been really important to me and then I have another really close friend from grad school who's a novelist as well, Julia Pierpont, um, who wrote this book called Among the 10,000 Things, who's in a, a, we're in a writing group together. And honestly, if it weren't for like Julia, I probably wouldn't even be as far along in my second book as I am at this point. um, Because of just the sort of like accountability pressure and uh, maybe a little dose of like healthy, like if you're writing, I need to be writing, um, you know, (laughs) That kind of thing. I feel like that was a long, like, rambling answer without, like, a thesis.
0: (laughs) No, it was perfect. (laughs) It was was perfect. perfect. It actually answered, I was thinking just now, that a better question would be, like, how has friendship informed your creative process? And you totally answered that question, which was better than what I actually asked. So um, thank you. (laughs) Well done. Um, (laughs) been like really amazing to me about these friendships and how
2: they've changed over time and they these women have become like and there are other so many other women too who are like so important to me I could like do a like a list and I also wonder if I should maybe not have, like named names but but not that it matters but like like they what's amazing to me is like we started out with this interest in our in each other's work, I think, like, really, first and foremost, and what's happened is that we've become, like, really deep friends, <laughs> like, and now so much of our friendship is just about, like, how to be a, a, alive right now, <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. what, what's going to happen to the world, and what we're going to do, and, you know, how we can show up for other people, and um, all of that stuff, so, yeah, that, that seems like such a gift, it's, it, like, seems like a weird gift that my work, gave me kind of the writing gave me also is like access to these or the introduction to these women
0: I love that and sorry I was just scribbling down a little bit of your quote because I really like it um especially about how to be alive that just feels like very relevant right now but I think also always so it sounds um excellent um and I also like thinking about that being a gift that your writing gives you because I think that's also really important, it's also often not part of how friendship is discussed in relation to literary things. So it's often about only like competition or whatever else. And I think um, there's just so many other facets that don't often get discussed.
2: Yeah, well, I think that that competition is such an interesting word to bring into conversations about female friendship, because I think also, this is just a hunch, and I would have to do some more, like, academic-style research to make sure that I'm, like, really backing up this wild claim I'm about to make. But my feeling is just for my – having been a voracious reader my whole life and having always been interested in, like, stories about women and women women's friendships or girls and their friendships with other girls, whatever, um, is that, like, those narratives also used to take a kind of different sort of tack. Like, take a book like Summer Sisters by Judy Bloom, which yes. I – I love, I love that book. Also, like Judy Bloom, I love Judy Bloom. Every she's my, I love her. But like, there's a little, like, there's a little competition and like, um, a little, like, uh, a, a little bit more of like a kind of pointed quality in the relationship between the two friends in that book. Valerie, I'm forgetting the other one's name, Victoria. Um,
1: Vic Yeah, and I just reread it this summer. Um... Vix And am I getting wrong Valerie wrong? Yeah, I can't remember the other one's name either, which is really funny because she is the,
2: you know, charismatic leader
1: version of the duo.
2: Yeah. Oh, Oh God. Okay, I got to switch my mind. Okay, but anyways, like, and then in, you know, even in Marlena, right, I was interested in the ways that, like, there are these, like, sort of competitive elements or these, like, sort of more, like, toxic threads. But Summer Sisters ultimately ends with this, and correct me if I'm wrong because you read it more recently than me, but it does ultimately have this, like, loving this loving kind of, um, I don't know, this loving way of like thinking about the friendship, but yes, I, I feel like that was like, that's like one of the earliest examples I can think of that. And this, there was still more, there was still a kind of like frenemy vibe. Well, at the
0: time, so
1: yeah. Much. And it's interesting because the loving way of thinking about the friendship only happens after Victoria mm-hmm. kind of abandons the, fr- or not abandons it, but is like, she just decides that they're, better off being friends in the past yeah well and then and then i'm sorry if anyone's spoiled by a nearly 40 year old book but uh the (sighs) charismatic friend is the one who dies and so that's how it all ends so then (laughs) then she's kind of forced to be you know like i think circumstances i don't know i i don't know if if she hadn't died how victoria would have viewed her um Yeah. And
2: I I guess what I'm getting at is that like, and maybe that's not the 100% best example, because it does kind of like sort of blossom open at the end into this like retrospective kind of like beautiful, loving thing. But like, There does, even like in something like the private machine Brody, where it's like, there's all these girls and it's like this girl school, but they all are kind of like pitted against each other. Um, I don't know. It seems like there's been a a shift or a, a shift that I am excited about from like degrees of frenemy up until like,
1: you know, like, well, like the group, like Mary McCarthy's the group. And it's almost like as our cultural discussion of like women's relationships has changed. Yeah, we've like become, it's been like more, it's
2: felt like more comfortable or something to write about the more emotional side of things. But I will say this also, it does seem um, something I know I've observed parents saying has been very, very interesting to me. You're you you also lucky to have all of these friends and she's got a lot of friends too, but it's not the same. Like, I think it wasn't like, it wasn't such a big part of how they were encouraged to like experience the world. And I I don't know that they put those friendships front and center as much as like family or their responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, And so that seems really sad to me sometimes. I don't know. I can't imagine um, what that's like. But it does seem like something that women are prioritizing in their lives now with the understanding that like partnerships, like romantic partnerships can't carry the weight of like, all of your emotional needs, or shouldn't, or why would you want them to? Or then you can get different things from different people, or I don't know. Mm -hmm. That was sort of a tangent, but
1: (laughs) No, but like, when, when thinking about um, the different, I don't know, I'm kind of currently noodling with a taxonomy, kind of a taxonomy of women's literary, or women's friendship novels. And one of the things that I see is that you have, you have novels that focus at diff- on different stages in women's lives. And the stages really are like they do run like there's, you know, the childhood best friend. And then there's, you know, that that magical teenage friendship that you mentioned. And then kind of the 20s navigating career. Um, I'm thinking like rich and pretty by Ruman Alam.
2: Yeah,
1: friendship by Emily Gould. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you have like the sort of like the dead years where you don't have any friends because you have a career and a family and a spouse and children and, or not, not children. And like some of your early friends don't have any, and then you do, or, you know, the other way around and you lose all these friends. And then there's kind of a golden girls sort of resurgence where you are all alone again. And now you have to make some friends. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I think part of that middle period is where, like, the love literature takes over. So you're, like, single, cool girl, you have your friends, and then you need to fall in love and get married or whatever. Um, And then it's, like, divorce literature, blah, 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 and then you can come back to your friends, like, kind of if you break popular novels into little segments. Yeah. Yeah, it
2: does seem like that. It does. And I don't know, but – and yet, though, like, I don't really – I don't have kids, um – maybe i will someday maybe not but like i i do have friends who have kids and it seems like they still have really close friendships with women
0: <laughs> you can still have friends if you have kids exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it seems like it happened it still
2: became it was like somehow
0: i don't know I, I i don't and
2: maybe it's just like a hunch but it, it does seem like nurturing those friendships has become like culturally important mm. now or it's even like become like something that people celebrate on like social media and like it's become, like, an okay thing to, like, say you put your friends, like, front friend center in your life in a way that I wonder if it always was, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's kind of where I was trying to go with talking about the literature that's already out there, and I don't know, maybe listeners who are trying to come up with a novel idea, like, maybe there's a hole in the market about <laughs> middle-aged women who have kids and friends, or yeah. <laughs> the, the other way around, you know? Um, but I think you're right, though, that what... What sort of those trends and then what you've observed shows is perhaps we are at kind of a juncture of change in general with the way we see friendships over a lifetime.
2: Yeah, I do think, um, I I hope that we just continue to see them as like, I don't know, primary relationships, just like familial ones. Certainly how I
1: feel. I feel like it's like an extension of family at this point. Or better than sometimes.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: I agree with that. But I like, so I might just for the rest of this season only talk about Golden Girls. But um, (laughs) like Golden Girls is such a radical thing, not just because of the age thing, but also because there are not actually not that many like portrayals of women's friendship, like in television that are not somehow also centered on a man in some other way, right? Or a group of men or something else. Um. Yeah. So I was just thinking about that when I think about Golden Girls versus like a lot of other things that exist.
2: I have never watched Golden Girls. I never have watched Golden Girls. And and part of it, I think, is because I, I did not have like a very robust like TV life as a teenager. It just there was a lot. Of, there was one TV in my house and seven kids in my family. So it just like wasn't. <laughs> and I was not the oldest. So I did not have any <laughs> TV viewing rights. So I just like never watched any T V until like prestige TV in like late college with my boyfriends. So I, I didn't I just never saw Golden Girls, but my my friends love it.
0: And I should really watch it, I think, probably. Yeah, you should. I wasn't allowed to watch it because it's too like sexy and from super Christian family. Um, And so is like got a lot of write-ups for how like raunchy it is, which is amazing It's amazing because they're in their 60s and 70s I I love it now. It's like one of my favorite things like on earth that that was like really one of the most hated uh, We used to it's a long story I'll write about it later But we used to get these newsletters that summarized all the dirty things that happened on TV and Golden Girls was like really holding its own against like NYPD blue Um, (laughs) Yeah yeah. It is amazing. So um, I am thinking about that. But I just started watching it recently. I would never seen it before. I don't think I'd even seen an episode. And it's pretty radical. Like in that way that um, when you- like I because I think I had such for different reasons, but similarly limited mainstream culture, like television culture when I was growing up. I'm continually surprised by how radical previous times are compared to, like, our kind of monolithic pop culture that we have now. Like, I've been thinking about, like, 9 to 5, right? Uh, That movie with Dolly Parton. Like, you think it's some dumb movie, but actually, like, A, they're smoking pot, which doesn't happen really nearly enough in movies. And, B, they, like, plot to kidnap their boss so that they can get more rights for the women that work in the office. Like, pretty great. Doesn't exist now. Yeah, it's yeah, awesome. you got to see it. I got to. Yeah.
1: Well, and so Golden Girls is always—it's often, or Sex and the City was often compared to Golden Girls, but I think there's an interesting arc there in the kind of the way women are on TV and the way they were portrayed, just television in general in the '80s. But Golden Girls—they date, and Blanche is like the the most active. Um, of the group and she's always out looking for men she's like a big manhunter character but she she's the samantha yeah well except uh, so golden girls though is not about what are they all going to find new husbands it's about how do these four women live together in this house and navigate like, yeah. the world together um and sex in the city is about those things but those things are like sub- subsumed under the narrative of all of the sex that they're having and will carry fine true love. So yeah. I think it is interesting.
0: No, it's radical because it doesn't center men and these women are visibly old. Like, and it was on television for so long. Uh, so I think it's worth like, you don't need to watch a lot. If you get bored, then whatever, but like definitely watch some episodes. Cause it is, I find it really radical. It's like wild how radical in certain ways, the eighties work even, you know, compared to things that are available to us now.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I will definitely, that's like the best endorsement that I could have gotten. (laughs) Funny, (laughs) one of my, my friend Julia loves that show. And I'm always like, I, I just feel like it's like something that I, I don't know about that I would have to like friends kind of, I didn't watch that either growing up. And I'm like, I don't know anything about this. Like I can't penetrate this like mythology of friends. Like I don't, (laughs) I don't have the like way in. I felt like that a little bit about Golden Girls, but knowing that you started it late and like you came to it sort of later in life, I'm just going to dive in.
1: And it predates like narrative arc TV too. I mean, especially for comedies. There's no, it's episodic. (laughs) Like you don't have to watch it in order or there may be like three episodes in a row about some storyline, but it's not like everyone's pretty much the same the whole time.
0: People are just in this house, and funny things happen to them, and like, yeah, it's not, they're not really arcs, but it is, I mean, I started from the beginning, this is literally, I watched my first episode like two weeks ago, Oh, so, but I'm like always surprised when I watch older movies, especially in that sort of 70s and 80s period, that like a popular movie can, or show can have these narrative things, and like okay, people got kind of outraged, but also people consumed it. Whereas now, like, we're just continually inundated with, like, the same story, like, very similar stories um, all the time. I totally agree with that. I mean, last my
2: husband and his friend, one of his close friends, and sometimes his wife, whatever, they come over often to watch. We have this, like, kind of ongoing tradition of watching just, like, the the weirdest, like, most off-kilter, like, older movie that we can find. And, and, like, bad or good, we're not looking for, like, anything – we're just looking for something that looks like it could never have possibly been made, like, now. And we watched last night's movie Vampire's Kiss. Have it, Have any of
1: you seen this with Nicolas Cage? No. Oh, no. Olivia will not watch it if it has a Nicolas Cage in it. <laughs> that is true.
2: This is the most bananas movie I've, like, ever seen. It's, like, this crazy story about this literary agent who, like, played by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> like, this I swear this tangent relates to this larger conversation. But he, like... <laughs> goes on all these dates with women and then he thinks or maybe is bitten by a woman who's a vampire and he becomes a vampire meanwhile he's like harassing his assistant to find this file and this very like kafka-esque kind of experimental like plot that's very 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 off the wall like it's totally totally strange and this is like a major, major like cinematic release but it's actually like a way more complicated anyways he thinks he's a vampire maybe he's actually a vampire there's like a, a kind of blurriness there but probably he's just crazy and he completely goes off the walls and it's like kind of a more nuanced portrait of toxic masculinity and like the ways that man- men can't handle being rejected than anything I've seen recently it's like more It's more on the pulse of, like, male rage than, like, I don't know. I haven't seen The Joker, but my friends last night were talking about The Joker, and they were like, I don't, I think this, like, gets it better than The Joker. It's like, oh my god, how is this? What happened between, like, 1981 and,
0: like, now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm really fascinated. Okay, I like this that you also have this weird hobby. Like, I didn't even know (laughs) it's basically a legitimate hobby. Now you've validated it, so that's really helpful. We do this, like, every week. (laughs) No, but, like, you open up, I don't know, Netflix or whatever, or whatever, iTunes. I'm abroad, so I'm basically relying on those. And I'm kind of like, I get what all of those stories are. Like, we've seen them. Maybe it's better or worse, but, like, I don't feel like anyone's really pushing the boat out on, like, I mean – Yeah, your vampire movie, Nicolas Cage or not. Maybe I'll check it out.
2: It's He's not even like Nicolas Cage. He, like, transcends his stuff. It's really (laughs) – just watch, like, ten minutes of it.
0: (laughs) Great. I can't wait. That's exciting. Um, We have – I don't know about your time, but we respect your time slot. So we do want to talk to you a little (laughs) little bit about craft. It's hard to go back to that after our book and movie club. But, um, yeah. So do you, like – Megan do you have questions specifically on this it's on your list I do well okay so first I think
1: that this whole conversation about books and movies is related to craft because we were talking about the market <laughs> and you know the when Elena Ferrante came out and the market saw that it I'm going to recap our whole episode here real fast um previously on marginally uh Elena Ferrante you know showed that these books were marketable and people would buy them. And right now everything just seems so algorithmically determined. Olivia and I are big fans of Jenny O'Dell and how to do nothing. And it's like, she has this whole section talking about um, like Spotify or other streaming music and how the more you listen, the more same it gets until it's this like radio station that is your brain, except it's never allowed to change. Like you're never pushed out of your comfort zone. And the same thing that, Olivia is saying about like the movies um anyway so it is kind of related if we're if we're all sort of thinking about like will an agent or an editor take a chance on something that is not would not be recommended by the algorithm basically um so I yeah I don't know maybe if you could like look at that briefly before we I also want to talk about what you've talked about on Twitter lately about workshopping. Yeah.
2: Um, the, the question of like what people will take a chance on an editorial, you know, in the like closed door editorial meetings of New York city publishing houses. And I, I don't, I don't know like catapult functions so differently from most places. I think um, in ways that are really exciting to me. And I've said this before, I'm actually transitioning out of catapult now. Um, I'm going to be joining, um, the faculty at university of michigan in january but
1: congratulations thanks
2: I, i'm staying on as an editor at large and like you know i feel like i've learned a lot from the conversations that happen in editorial meetings about what we can acquire and what our list is going to look like and whatever but those conversations are first and foremost at catapult at least about each book and what it is trying to do it's an individual aims and whether or not the writer has achieved them and then it becomes about um how it would work on our list. If, if then most importantly, maybe of all, like if we can publish the book well, um, which is a complicated question, right? Like it doesn't, not every publisher can publish a book the best way. Some publishers, some books need like the big blockbuster, like marketing budgets of like a big house or they need those distribution channels and then whatever they know we're an indie house. So, um, booksellers and, uh, you know, people who are going to help us move our books through the world have a sense of our aesthetic and our taste. And we have to, we have to work with that a little bit too, like what our identity is in the world. So that, that sometimes means a really good thing isn't really right for us. Um, but I don't know how like big publishers deal with like the algorithm as a kind of, I don't know, as a kind of metric for like what they take on. I feel kind of cynical about it all. Like I've seen so many wacky things happen. Um, you take a, take a book like Carmen Maria Machado's, uh, collection. No big publisher wanted to publish that. It just went into its 10th printing. There were like a hundred thousand copies out in the world. Um the algorithm was not gonna say we need queer body horror. We need a collection of short stories that are like queer feminist body horror. No, that was not gonna like readers aren't it, it doesn't work, I I don't think. Um, I think that publishers can make educated guesses based on that kind of thing. But ultimately like what happens between a writer and a reader has nothing to do with like Anything, any any kind algorithm. of an algorithm. Yeah, which is kind of the beautiful thing about it. Um, but that said, I'm not sure how people are like acquiring to that. I also see acquisitions. I think that more and more, I used to say to um, writers that like, don't worry about social media. It's all about you know what you're writing, and I still think that's true. But I also think I'm more and more willing, or more and more, um, unfortunately, coming to believe that social media just like helps. And you should just, unless you have an objection, which you should, like, you should probably try it. Uh, I think it helps more than it hurts, unless you're like awful. Um, I don't know. So yeah, I mean, we don't think about or talk about like the algorithm really. Again, this idea of like what people are searching for, and I know there are whole publishing houses now that will like acquire, solicit, and acquire books based on like common search terms. Um, Wow. There's this hyper wow. all, but there's like a whole publishing industry for that uh, of nonfiction titles that are like capitalizing on on um, mm-hmm. basically like SEO stuff, um, which seems really
1: yeah. messed up to me. So there's this sci fi book from the 70s called um, The Something Catherine Mortonhoe. I'll have to look it up. Um, it'll be in the show notes because I don't want to take time to do that, but. The character title character Catherine Mortenhoe works as a quote writer, but what she does is she sits at a computer that puts together like literally puts together algorithmic stories from a bank of plots and stock phrases and she just kind of looks them over to make sure they make sense, but that's it. And she'll she'll be like, Oh, I'm gonna arrange this story based on like pushing these buttons and plugging in these things and then it spits it out and that's Pretty much what you just described. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
2: that is like, I was pretty horrified when I heard that that was happening. And then I was like, why am I surprised about this? Um, I don't know why I am, but I do feel like I am. Uh, Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so the other thing is that I kind of wanted to touch on is you have commented a lot recently about the kind of workshopping process, and a lot of our listeners are, including Olivia and me, are not like... I mean, we've published small pieces here and there. And Olivia has a um, co-wrote a book many years ago. But, um, you know, we're all still kind of in that early creative stages. And the, the idea of a workshop, traditionally, of where the writer just sits there and everybody just tears them apart and they can't say anything. And then there was a piece recently that I will have to look up um, about how the workshop process should be different. And maybe it was in Catapult. I think it was in Lit Hub. Okay. Yes, that's the one. I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, especially because you have an MFA and you are, I'm assuming your position in Michigan is going to be in their creative writing program. So,
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have a lot of
1: uh, feelings about this. I acquired a book, um,
2: gosh, I guess it was early last year, um, by Matthew Selassus, uh called Craft in the Real World, which uh, kind of addresses this question head on of like, how can we, how can we think about workshop? How can we make workshop a more inclusive space for everyone in the workshop? Um, and how can we move away from this model of workshop that started in a pretty homogenous space? I think it. I think the history is Iowa Writers' Workshop um, kind of was the was the birthplace of this model, and it was probably a bunch of white men in a room um, where <laughs> somebody needed to remind the white man. <laughs> Who was work- being workshop, like not to interrupt the conversation, um, which is like not what most workshops look like now, and 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 there are other reasons to change it, but like even just questioning, like where did this come from and why was it put in place, and are the um, are the circumstances in which we came up with this model, like do they even apply now um, to the spaces that most workshops, like to what workshop looks like? I just think that taking the writer's aims like we can say I think almost every course description we find for like a fiction workshop in undergrad or grad an mfa program whatever will say something along the lines of like we will take the writer's aims into consideration while discussing like the ways in which the work doesn't meet them or whatever (laughs) or or does not meet them like there's always this emphasis on like of course we're going to protect and preserve your voice But like, really, how can you do that? If you don't know if the writer is not allowed to say what their aims are? And what is the harm? Like, in what way does it devalue the critique if the writer says, this is what I was trying to do? Add that to the room? Like, it doesn't take away from people's ability to be critical and rigorous. And, um, you know, and for that conversation to be just as as helpful as it would be if the writer wasn't allowed to say that with the uh, potential for like severe emotional trauma removed. (laughs) Like I just genuinely just like don't understand it. It just seems so clear to me. And I think part of this is too, because I, I did, I do have an MFA, um, but really I've spent most of my time in the last 10 years in editorial spaces. Um, Again, at independent publishers, which is kind of like a a utopian place compared to, the big five in terms of like, I mean, we have our, our disappointing behaviors and practices, certainly, and there's much we could improve. So I don't mean to stress that it's like all, all hunky-dory there, but it's, the art comes first and the author comes first. Um, that I truly believe about places like Catapult and the independent publishers that I work with at like the community of literary magazines and presses when I, when I worked there. Um, and we talk to our authors, like the first thing that happens in an editorial conversation is the author gets to talk <laughs> about like what they're trying to do and what their vision is for the work. And then you, your job is to help them reach it. Um, and to offer suggestions if you think there's ways in which that vision can be, um, encouraged to be expanded or, um, maybe something hasn't been, they haven't thought of something and you can, you can try to like gently, um, slide it into that conversation. I think You know, I've never believed, now I'm like ranting, but I've never ever believed that like MFAs create homogenous work. Never. Um, Even, I've never thought that like it's a factory for the same kind of fiction. I definitely don't believe that, but I do think that there are these little like tricks and and things that come out of MFA programs that are lazy and also come from this like people writing their things down in their letter, the writer doesn't get to talk, everybody says their piece, the teacher sits back in their chair and listens, throws in some thoughts at the end, and like it's That's it. I, I don't know. I, I just have a lot of, I have like sort of a lot of problems with that. Um, Even little things, my students will, I had a thesis meeting with someone yesterday. I'm working with um, a couple of students at Columbia this semester and you know, I don't want to say too much about her work, but we were having a conversation about collapsing two peripheral characters, making them one because they were serving the same role in the text. And that can be really good advice. It's advice I've given people before, but it just like, it was so, it like reeked of like consensus in class you know, and of like an easy solution to like a problem that might have a more innovative answer. And I, I mm. guess I, I don't know. I'm, I have some concerns about the kind of basic structure of workshop, not being ultimately like the most creative and welcoming space that it can be. And I think the author should have a much larger role in what that looks like. I don't know. And I just think no one should leave workshop feeling like they don't want to write again. That's like awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should, yeah. It not happen, you know, or that their humanity has been like denied in some essential way, um, which can happen too, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, No, definitely. I agree with that. And I think, I think, well, you also get, we're starting to get a backlash, right, against some of the kind of MFA produced literature and blah, blah, blah. People have written a lot about how that promotes that homogeneity. Right. And so if you have more input from the author, maybe about what they were trying to do, and then the workshop can be more about how to achieve that thing rather than how to just make it like all the other things that we're taught are good. Um, Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's I think it's a really important I think it's really interesting discussion about the way that we're sort of challenging. I think a lot of our institutions or assumptions because they've been like all of these things have been basically made up by these like small groups of people that weren't very inclusive. And now we have to assess everything again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, and I do think like the process, like, I don't know, I don't know the answer to like what the best way of doing workshop is or what the best workshop looks like, or how to fix the problems of workshop. But I just, I just am not okay with like, assuming that what has been done is the right move. Um, especially because of all of the, I don't know, like, the one of the number one things I feel like I hear from writers, even writers whose work I've acquired at Catapult, is, like, oh, Workshop was, like, a trauma, like, my MFA was a traumatizing experience for me. It's, like, mm. in what ways was that artistically helpful, and in what ways was that, like, I don't know, <laughs> did it make you write less than you've ever written in your entire life, or I don't know. Anyways. Yes. No. <laughs> Strong-
0: no, but I think it's really important, and I can't believe, I mean, that's really fascinating that such a big group of people have Felt that, but also are kind of haven't historically been empowered to do something about it or object to it because that's like the way things are supposed to be.
2: Yeah, and I, I do think it's like the instructor. It's, it's you know, I don't know. The instructor can can really make a big difference in that kind of traditional workshop space. And sometimes it's an instructor, a really good instructor, can like make that great. And can work around all the things that are challenging about it. But I think a lot of a lot of times, and I saw this in grad school too, I had some amazing teachers and I had some other teachers who like truly were incredible writers that would sort of like sit back until the end of class and then like sprinkle their wisdom onto the into the conversation and that was like the end, you know? Um, I don't know.
0: Yeah. It sounds, uh, I haven't been to a workshop that is like that. Like I've been in writing groups and some writing classes, but not like serious workshops. So I think, yeah, it sounds interesting and scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't go back, that's for sure. Yeah. Um. I don't have any more questions. Megan, do you? Um. Well, I just wanted to ask, because
1: this is like a question that I think I would like to start asking everybody is if you could just talk about is there something that you're just really excited about right now? And it does not have to be writing related, but just like, what can you not stop thinking about or talking about?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, huh. That's a really good question. You know, I feel kind of, uh, I feel kind of sad about the fact that my answer to this is like, that I don't really, I, the only thing that's really like kind of buzzily on my mind right now, um, in the way that like sticks, it's sort of 10. Yeah, oh, that was a gross, I'm going to revise. Um, in a way that's like infiltrated my day to day is is probably the thing that I'm, I'm excited about the thing that I'm working on, but I'm not, uh, I'm also superstitious and I, <laughs> I won't say anything at all about what it is about. Um, but in terms of like other things in the world, gosh, nothing that's like blowing my mind. Um, but I'm really excited to see, uh, Parasite, which is coming, which I think just came out. Um, have you all heard of that movie? Oh, you know what? Uh, yeah. I, I've, the last like year or so, um, I have been really into, uh, into horror movies, especially like kind of physical horror. So movies like Possession, um, Goodbye Mommy, uh, it, even it follows, though that's not like as much of the kind of like gross body stuff, some Dario Argento films. And I don't know what that's all going to add up to, but I, and, or why I'm interested. I think maybe because the world is so scary right now, I decided my imagination wants to be like even more freaked out, <laughs> like kind, kind of all the time. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers it. No, that's in a terms good of, answer. In terms of TV, I've been loving um, Big Mouth. Have y'all watched that?
1: I have not. So we have had that recommended by other guests and I see it everywhere and it just.
2: It's really great. It's so gross and funny and like irreverent and structurally interesting. Um, it's got like a kind of like fleabag ask like metafictional tick.
0: Okay.
2: Um, it's mm. really good. It's really, 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 really good. I
0: would recommend it highly. That sounds good. I will definitely check that out. And also your horror movie thing is also totally up our alley, like what we were envisioning. You know, just like that thing that you can't stop going back to for whatever reason. Uh, maybe you Google it or whatever. So I think the horror movie thing, that's really interesting, especially now.
2: Yeah. Thankfully, my husband likes them too. But it's, it's true that like pretty much whenever we are, if we're not doing like bad movie night, we're like, let's watch a horror movie. Let's find some kind of like weird, I don't know some kind of like the most like violent and like I don't I do want to write something about it at some point in time actually but I don't know what that would be
1: yeah
0: yeah that's how it goes right yeah
2: (laughs) right you just kind of follow the
1: interest
0: yeah cool thank you so much for your time great well thank you both so much thanks for thinking of me for this yeah thank you thank you so much
1: thanks. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign up form
0: is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced
1: by the two of us, Megan and Olivia, so excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes.